0: GBC Online, welcome. We're glad you are tuning in with us. Thank you for being with us this morning as well. Hey, if we've not met, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here at GBC. This morning we get to the the final exam question, finally, of Mark chapter 8, where Jesus looks at his disciples and he asks them the question, Who do you say that I am? We've been trying to keep that question at the forefront of our conversation the entire series that we've been walking through the gospel of Mark. The identity of Jesus, it is still one of the most hotly contested questions ever. We could line up 10 different folks from where you live, work, learn, and play, give them a microphone, ask them, hey, who do you say Jesus is? And we're going to get 10 different answers. Jesus is and always will be the most polarizing figure in human history. Uh, but this is, this is the one question that we've got to get right. Because how we answer it, it has eternal implications. Uh, Because if Jesus is who he said he is, God in human flesh, and he did what he said he did, come to the earth, live a perfectly sinless life, satisfactory to God and God's demands of his law, and then willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and our sins. I'll get to that later. Then after three days rose from The dead, victorious over sin, death, and the grave. If that is true, then we at least need to be willing to investigate some of the claims of this Jesus. And it's what we've been doing for the last couple of months as we've walked through the gospel of Mark. These first eight chapters of Mark, they have been geared at trying to help us answer the question, who is this Jesus? We've seen miraculous power and authority in teaching. We've seen the compassion of Jesus. We've seen his grace at work. This is the one who Mark says back in the very beginning of his gospel is the Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In case you were confused, it's not Jesus' first name, Christ's last name, okay? Christ is a title. The Messiah, the Greek Christos, it's, it's the anointed one. And the anointed one, the Messiah, carried with him all of the hopes of the people of God. All of Israel believed that one day God would step into human history in the person of his Messiah, his anointed one. And he would make everything wrong, right. Make all of his enemies his footstool. He would reign with righteousness and peace and justice He would deliver the people of God, give sight to the blind, new legs to the lame, proclaim liberty to the captives. Mark knew this, obviously, about Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1. But it has taken eight whole chapters for his disciples to get a clue. And even then, there's only one guy who seems to get the answer right, Peter. More on him in a few. All eight chapters have been answering this question, who is this king? Our passage this morning, 827 all the way to 9-1, it kind of cuts the book right down the middle because the next eight chapters identify this king and his cross. This morning is the final exam question, and it is a foundational question. I say foundational to get across the importance of these kinds of questions. Uh, How many of you guys have ever... um, built something or those of you in construction like what happens if you get the foundation of a house wrong things liable to fall on your head everything else is bound to be messed up if you do not get a foundation Right. And hear me, there are lots and lots of foundational questions that people are trying to answer. Lots of foundational questions that our culture and this world is offering up as being truly anchoring and stabilizing and life shaping and purpose giving. Here, here, here's some of the, the popular foundational questions that our culture is trying to convince you that you should be answering. Uh, here's one of them. You ready? Maybe you've heard it. Am I happy? That's everything. Am I happy? It proposes the chief philosophy that that the chief end of man is to be happy and to have no problems and to have fun and to enjoy myself. A close second to that one is the foundational question of am I being true to myself? This is very popular In our culture right now, am I being true to myself? Regardless of what convention and tradition and family has to say, am I being true to my inner sense of being? For for other people, maybe religious people, the foundational question that you're trying to answer is Am I sincere enough? Am I trying hard enough? Am I good enough? Am I putting forth enough effort? To the scientific-minded in the room, perhaps the most foundational question for you revolves around neo-Darwinian evolution. Maybe that means nothing to many of you, but to some of you, that's your jam. That's the question you're trying to answer. If physical life is all that there is, then what are the motivations driving my life? The Christianity... Is different than all of these other foundational questions because its life shaping, purpose giving, anchoring, stabilizing question revolves around one person and his name is Jesus. Now, this morning I've got two big questions I'm going to try to answer. The first question is why does Jesus ask two questions instead of one? We've been talking about a final exam question for months. But Jesus kind of leads them towards the final exam question with kind of a pregame question. Why two questions? And the second question I'm going to try to answer is really more important. If Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God, what's the big deal? What's the significance for you, for me, for us? What are the glorious implications if Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did? Did read with me, Mark chapter 8, verse 27 is where we're going to be reading from this morning. Mark 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others said, Elijah the prophet, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but, but, who do you? Who do you, Grace, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them, verse 30, to tell no one about him. Here it is, the final exam question. But Jesus doesn't start with the final exam question. He starts with a warm-up question. First he asks him, hey, what do people in general say about me? You guys get around. What's, what's the word on the street? What's the tea? You know what that means? It means gossip. It's a millennial thing. I don't really understand. Like spill the tea. I, I, spill the beans is what I think. I don't know. But what's the tea on me? What do people say about me? What's the popular opinions about me? And the three answers that he gets are John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. And these just weren't plucked out of thin air. No, these were the same answers that were cropping up all over the place. Back in chapter 6, King Herod, he just, the head off of John the Baptist, right? And and so now Herod is asking the same question because Jesus' popularity and fame continues to grow. And King Herod's like, who is this guy? And people are like, it's John the Baptist, he's back from the dead. No, 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 it's, a, it's Elijah the prophet. No, 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 it's just one of the prophets. And all three of these are pretty impressive. I mean, John the Baptist was no slouch, y'all. He was a popular teacher. He's a really challenging figure. He called people to repentance. He really knew how to draw a crowd. A lot of people were interested in John. Maybe Jesus is John the Baptist. No, 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 Maybe Jesus is the prophet Elijah. You remember Elijah didn't even die. I don't know how he arranged this, but like a fiery chariot picked him up and took him to heaven in a whirlwind. I don't know how to figure that out, but that's how I want to go if I can. But Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 tells us that Malachi was supposed to come back before the great day of the Lord. And Elijah was one of the only few Old Testament prophets who operated and performed miracles. Elijah and Elisha, those are two different people in case you're confused. Maybe, maybe, gosh, Jesus really reminds us of Elijah. And then there's other who are like, hey, let's not hedge our bets here. Let's not be too specific. Maybe he's just one of the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos. Pretty impressive things are being said here about Jesus. I mean, if you came up to me after church and you said, you know, Cameron, we really see Jeremiah in you. I'd be like, yeah, okay, who else do you see in me? Isaiah, okay, Isaiah, he's pretty impressive. They're saying some pretty impressive things about Jesus here. They're recognizing that he has worked remarkable miracles, that he can draw a crowd as well, that his popularity is growing, that he teaches with incredible authority. He's obviously come from God. He's obviously pointing people to God. He obviously is speaking for God. Not bad at all. And yet all three answers fall incredibly short of who Jesus really is. Because in all three examples, Jesus is only a forerunner. John the Baptist, you remember? He was a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist was a forerunner. He was to prepare the way. He wasn't the way. Elijah, Elijah was... Elijah was told that he was coming back, Malachi 4, 5, b- b- before the great day of the Lord. He was also a forerunner. He was to prepare the way. Many thought that John was the Elijah of his day, coming and preparing the way. And then the prophets of old, what did they do? They were pointers. They spoke for God, on behalf of God. They called people back to God. All of these were pointers. None of them were the point. And if you look at Jesus and you think that he's only a pointer and not the point, you do not know who he is yet. Why does Jesus ask two questions instead of one? Because he needs to clear out all of the popular opinions of who he is before he zeroes in, looks you and me in the eye and he says, but who do you? Who do you say that I am? We all have to answer the question. And all of the voices that we subscribe to, all of the YouTube channels, our favorite television preachers, Time Magazine, every Easter, and all these voices, they say some true stuff. But it's not accurate. Jesus, you're a brilliant teacher. You're a great spokesman for God. You are a master, a master at miracles. You are an ethical example, Jesus. You stand at the front of a long line of gifted, unique, enlightened individuals. Close, but no cigar. Who do people say that I am? We got to sift through this stuff first. Got to sift through this stuff first so that I can look at you, says Jesus, and ask you, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of all people, Peter pipes up and answers. Man, Peter has always got an answer to every question, whether he's invited to answer or not. Kind of like one of the pastors at GBC, uh, bald glasses about Yehi. You don't know him. I don't think you've met him. But Peter, man, Peter pipes up and he says, you are the Christ. And what is Jesus' response? No. No, Jesus doesn't applaud his confession at all. What's Jesus' response to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ? Shh. He strictly charges them to tell no one about him. Why? Peter nailed it, right? Peter got the right answer. And yet Jesus literally tells them to sit down and shut up. That's a little harsh, Pastor Cam. What's harsh is what Jesus told them. That that phrase strictly charged in the ESV, it's literally the same word from chapter 1 and chapter 3 when Jesus rebuked the demons and told them to sit down and shut up about his identity. Why? What is going on here? Peter seemed to get the answer right and yet Jesus rebukes all of the disciples and says, tell no one about my identity. And he does this Because though Peter got the right answer with his lips, he had not yet grasped the significance of the confession with his heart. Listen, we can have the right knowledge of who God is on our lips and yet be disastrously wrong. Don't believe me? Go to Facebook. I mean, your Facebooks. Jesus accepts Peter's confession. Yet he immediately turns in verse 31, and he begins to say things that are absolutely appalling and shocking. He says, yes, I'm a king. I am the king. That's what Peter was saying when he declared, you are the Christ. You are the king. The king to end all other kings. The king who's going to put everything right. Jesus is saying, yeah, I am the king. But I'm a king unlike one you've ever seen before. I'm a king whose first stop isn't the throne. It's the cross. What he's saying here in verse 31, look. And he began to teach them that the son of man, say son of man. That the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes. And be killed and after three days rise again. And what's Peter's response now? It is rich, y'all. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. Jesus did. This is just to make it clear, like, he wasn't speaking in a metaphor. He wasn't speaking allegorically. Jesus was being very clear and very plain. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise from the dead. And Peter took him aside and same word that Jesus used in chapter 1. Same word that Jesus used in chapter 3. He rebuked Jesus. I, I imagine it looked like this. I'm sorry, the son of man must what? Su- hold on, time out. Jesus, c- come here, big guy, come here. Um, do, you, do you know who you are? Like you, you are the Messiah, the son of God. You are the son of man for crying out loud. What do you mean that you must suffer many things? Are you kidding me? We don't know exactly what Peter said. But we do know that Jesus' rebuke of him is... Probably the worst rebuke a disciple of Jesus could ever, ever get. Here's the deal, folks. We can have the right knowledge about Jesus and yet still be disastrously wrong. And Jesus is about to unload on Peter. But here's why. Peter, like us, still had an idealized view of Jesus. In other words, Peter still had a box for Messiah. He had an agenda for Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus first came on the scene back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15? The first time Jesus ever stepped on the scene, here's the message out of his mouth. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the king is here. It's showtime. And when the people of Jesus' day heard about the kingdom of God being in hand, all kinds of bells and whistles went off. Why? Because the people of God had been waiting and waiting and waiting and watching and longing and praying for the Christ to come, the Messiah. Because they believed that this would be when God would turn the tide and change the world and restore Israel to prominence. And break the yoke of the Roman Empire from around their neck. See, when Peter heard that the king of the kingdom had come, you know what he was looking for? He was looking for a sword on Jesus' hip and an army in tow. Jesus was a revolutionary. But he didn't show up handing out swords and spears. He showed up handing out living water and broken bread. You'd expect a king to have a crown. Jesus didn't have a crown. You'd expect Jesus to have a castle. Birds of nests and foxes have holes, but the son of man has no place to put his head. You'd expect the king of the kingdom to have an impressive entourage. Uh, But Jesus has some dirty fishermen, traitors and thieves in tow. No, it would take faith to see the son of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter had a plan and an agenda for Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him here. Man, before we can get to the rebuke, let me, let me take a step back. Verse 31, look, look for, for a second. I need you to see why Peter was so confused. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the son of man, Son of man must suffer many things. I, I don't know what you hear in that phrase, but it's one of Jesus' favorite designations of himself. And the son of man is not some humble reference to his humanity. No, son of man is rooted in Old Testament theology. Rooted specifically in Daniel chapter 7. Let me, let me read to you Daniel seven thirteen and 14 about this son of man. I saw in the night visions. This is Daniel Being given a vision by God Almighty, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. This is Jesus. And Jesus, the son of man, came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. Verse 14, and to him, the son of man, to him was given dominion. Say dominion. Dominion. And glory, say "glory." glory. And a kingdom, say kingdom. This son of man received glory and dominion and a kingdom so that all people and all nations and all languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed this son of man is not some self-designation to Jesus' earthly humanity, but a divine declaration of his identity as the one who will come one day with God's angel armies to judge the living and the dead and to bring forth the kingdom of heaven. And we know, we know that Jesus is tying son of man to Daniel 7. How do I know? Look at verse 38 of Mark 8. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels so we've got this son of man this divine heavenly figure who commands the host of heaven and yet in the very same breath jesus says that the son of man must suffer many things wait what what How can this son of man, divine and all-powerful, everlasting dominion and glory and power, how can this guy suffer? Grace, never before. Never before this moment in the gospel of Mark had anyone connected suffering with the Messiah. Nobody in Israel until this moment. Sure, there had been a mysterious suffering servant in Isaiah 43 and 44 and 54, but nobody had ever connected the dots that it would be the hope of Messiah. The notion of the Messiah suffering, it made no sense at all. Because the Messiah is supposed to defeat evil, defeat injustice, make everything right in the world. How could he defeat evil? By suffering. Ah, this is the upside-down kingdom. But Peter didn't understand. See, Peter got the answer right. But his heart hadn't yet caught up to his confession. So Jesus had to rebuke him. And how does he rebuke him? Look at verse 33. Nope, 32. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. May you never hear that from the Lord's saints. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. Listen, he wasn't calling Peter Satan. He was acknowledging that what was at work in Peter's heart and mind was the same devilish attitude of the adversary. In other words, hear me now. Peter was offering to Jesus the very same temptation that Satan offered to Jesus in the wilderness. A crossless throne. You remember the 40 days in the wilderness? One of the temptations, Satan comes to Jesus and says, hey, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Nobody's even here in the wilderness, Jesus. Just go ahead, bow down to me. No cross. No cup of wrath. No suffering. No pain. Just bow down to me. Come on, go ahead. And Peter's saying the same thing. Jesus, there's no way that you're going to suffer. I'm not going to let you suffer. I got your back, Jesus. There's no way that this is going to happen. How do we know that Peter had his own agenda? He showed up to the Garden of Gethsemane with a sword attached to his hip. Even at the end of Jesus' life, Peter still didn't get it. How do we know the disciples didn't get it even after the resurrection? I'll tell you, Acts chapter 1, they're asking, hey, Jesus, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And if I was Jesus, I'd have been like, guys, are you serious? You're still thinking this is about one nation. This is about all nations. And if the disciples can miss it that late in the game, there's hope for us. Get behind me, Satan. Peter didn't get it yet. He didn't understand that Jesus was the Son of Man, but he was also the suffering servant. We can have the right knowledge about Jesus and yet be disastrously wrong. Peter did not understand that the cross was necessary that the cross was crucial, that the cross was essential, because at the cross is where the perfect love and perfect justice of God meet and pour out God's wrath on the Son. The cross is where Jesus willingly, sacrificially stepped in to become for us what we needed, an unblemished, sinless sacrifice, able to truly, once and for all, atone for our sin and our sins. You know, every lamb that was slain in the old covenant did not turn away God's wrath. It just covered it for a season. But Jesus is the one size fits all sacrifice for sin that finally and fully satisfied all of the wrath and indignation of God towards sin. Why? Because, as Tim Keller writes, the cross is the place where the judge himself takes the judgment. Because God does not set aside his justice, he turns it onto himself. And that's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus paid a price we could not pay, a debt we could not owe. Our hard work was not good enough. Our performance fell too short. Which brings us to this second question we're going to try to answer. What's this all mean for you and for me? If Jesus is who he said he is, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of Man, and he did what he said he did, what does it mean for us? What are the glorious implications if Jesus is the Christ? Three implications. If he is, then we need to get a new life. We need to get a new agenda. And we need to get a new hope. Hey, guys, has a lady ever told you, get a life? Hope not. But that's essentially what Jesus is saying here. You need to get a new life. Let me explain. Jesus says, I am a king but I'm unlike any king that you have ever encountered before because my first stop is not a throne, it is a cross, and if you're going to follow me, that's going to be your destination too. Verse 34, this is what he is saying. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Me, this is radical, folks, because it is unlike anything any other religious figure has ever said. Jesus doesn't say, Hey, if you want to follow me, then you need to pick up my holy book and try really, really hard to keep every single rule and regulation. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, hey, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, then you need to try your hardest to stay within the proper boundaries of behavior. You need to get a brand new morality. You need to start going to church. You need to stop smoking, drinking, chewing, and hanging with those who do. He doesn't say any of that. Essentially, he says, if you want to follow me, you need to get a new life. Now hear me, Grace, this is so important. The invitation of Jesus in Mark 8, 34 to pick up our cross and to follow him isn't simply a call to self-denial. It is a call to die to self. And we don't got to do dying. Really bad grammar there. But good theology. Because the invitation of Jesus is to come get on his cross with him. So he can put us to death and raise us to new life in him. I've said this before, and it is going to be as disorienting now as it was back then. But the radical claim to Christianity is not the improvement of our character or staying in the boundaries of behavior or systematizing our theology into bite-sized pieces. It is getting a new life, being joined to the life of the Son of God and learning through discipleship to give expression to the very nature and character of Jesus Christ in every crisis, in every conflict, and in every challenge. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. But it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in him. Who loved me and gave himself for me. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about getting a new life. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul is talking about an objective Anchored in history, reality, a moment 2,000 plus years ago where Christ Jesus really did die on a cross on a hill called Calvary. And Paul is saying, when you and I confess Christ, God crucifies us with his son. Ah, uh, what? <laughs> Wait a second, Cam, like... You look good for 38, but you are definitely not 2,000-plus years old. Explain that. I've said this before. God lives outside of time. You tracking with me? In his divine heavenly helicopter. He lives outside of time. He created time for us, right? Right? Uh, John 1.14, and and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There was a point in time where God entered into time and space to be what we needed, a a sinless savior. God lives outside of time. and, And because of that, he sees all of time as right now, infinitely into the past, infinitely into the future. All of that for God is right now. Tracking? It's okay if you don't. Your mind doesn't need to understand this. Your heart needs to bow down to this. So when you confess Christ, when I confess Christ 20 some years ago, high school senior, 2002, when I said yes to Jesus, had no idea what that meant. God baptized me into Christ Jesus 2000 plus years ago on the timeline where Jesus died on the cross. This is a spiritual reality, folks. Because 2002 and 2000 years ago to God are right now. Don't believe me? Romans 6 says all of this. Romans 6, verse 3 says, Do you not know that he who has been baptized into Christ Jesus has been baptized into his death? So that we might walk in newness of life because we have been baptized with his resurrection. Uh, essentially, Paul is saying, when we confess Christ, we got a new life. God put to death our old, sinful, selfish, hopeless, helpless, hell-bound life. And he raised us to walk in a new life. The life of Jesus. Paul says it like this in Colossians 3. For you have died past tense it's another way of saying the same thing in galatians 2 you have died past tense this has already happened for you have died and your life is hidden with christ in god verse 4 and when christ who is your life appears you will appear with him in glory hear me now jesus is lord but he's not just Lord. Jesus is Savior, but he's not just our Savior. Jesus Christ is our life. He is our source. He is our supply. He's not only keeping the fluid in our eyeballs running and the blood pumping in our veins, but he is the very source that strengthens and empowers us to walk in obedience to all of the commands of God's word. This is why I've often said to you, you have a second mile life in you. Because you've been joined to the second mile life of Jesus. You have a cheek turning life in you. Don't tell me you ain't got self-control. Last time I checked, it was the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. What's the implication if Jesus is the Christ, we need to get a new life. And that's exactly what we received when we confessed Christ as Lord and as Savior. If I left you confused, go hang out in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. You're going to see some of the richest, most beautiful theology ever. When Christ died, you died. And whatever Jesus died to, you died to. And whatever he is raised to walk in, you are now raised to walk in as well. Power. An indestructible life. Oh, but Cam, man, why do I still struggle with sin? Good question. We call that flesh. You know what flesh is? Flesh are all of those habit patterns of thinking and feeling and acting. The ways in which we got our needs met apart from Christ before Jesus came into our life. And when we get saved and get a new life, those old echoes of our former man, they don't go away. Some of those ruts are so deep in us. But now we have options that we never had before. Now we have the Holy Spirit who empowers us to choose life instead of death. To walk in the spirit instead of gratify the desires of the flesh. And the only way we're going to win that war is if we keep our faces in the book. And if we keep ourselves surrounded by the community of believers who can lovingly say, that ain't Jesus coming out of you and I love you too much to let you keep acting like that. If Jesus is the Christ, we got to get a new life, and that's the promise of the gospel. But we also got to get a new agenda. Look, we already talked about Peter having an agenda for Jesus. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, I need you to go ahead and put the, the stomping on Rome and get them out of here. And Jesus is like, I'm a king, but my crown will be thorns and my first throne will be the cross and you need to get a new agenda. And the new agenda is seen clearly in verse 35-38. through 38. For whoever would l- save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? For what can a man or woman give in return for his soul? This was Jesus' point to Peter Peter had an agenda for Jesus and Jesus rebuked him as, about as sternly as any guy can get rebuked. And Jesus is saying, listen, trying to save your life, you trying to call the shots in your life, you trying to write the script in your life, you trying to work a profit and gain the world. No, 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 all that's going to leave you empty ultimately. You need to get a new agenda. You need to be willing to lose your life for my sake and then you'll save it. Each of us showed up on this planet dead in our sins and trespasses because of your children of Adam. But praise God that we, though we were lost in one man, Adam, we could be found and rescued and redeemed in another man, the greater Adam, Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 12 to 21, 1 Corinthians 15. Make a note. Jesus is the greater Adam who passed the test in the garden that our forefather Adam failed miserably. We need to get a new agenda, though. When's the last time you negotiated with a king? You don't negotiate with kings. If you do, you've not come to him as king. Yet Jesus is a king on the cross. And if he was only a king... We would have to submit to him because of his kingship. But he's a king who went to the cross for you and I. Why wouldn't we gladly, willingly lay down our life and say, I am available. Here am I. Take my life. Take my children. Parents, your children are a gift for you to steward for the sake of the kingdom of God. Stop trying to vicariously live your life through them. You will break them. Our resources are not to make a living, it's to make a legacy. This is the way of the upside-down kingdom. You want to get rich? Start being generous and watch how God makes you abound in all things. You want to be strong and powerful? Give it away and serve those who don't have power. And watch how God strengthens you and fortifies you for the worst that the world can throw at you. You want to make a name for yourself? Stop trying and receive the name of son and daughter from the heavenly father who loves you, created you, and calls you to himself. If Jesus is a Messiah, we need to get a new life, we need to get a new agenda, and finally we need to get a new hope. Look at chapter 9, verse 1, the last verse of the passage. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You know, some people thought that what Jesus was saying is the generation to who he was talking to, they would all see Jesus coming again before they died. That's not a right interpretation because everyone's dead and the church has cherished and loved this passage well beyond the death of that generation. No, Jesus is saying something entirely different. Jesus knew that he was not leading his disciples on a pleasant afternoon hike, but to a cross. He knew that the call to follow him meant that sorrow and suffering awaited all who would follow in his footsteps. But he also knew that the life that was profoundly shaped by the cross was a life of incredible power and incredible hope. Because those who travel by way of the cross, they will see the kingdom of God in power. Both here and now and then and there. The day is coming where we will see Jesus split the sky and establish his forever kingdom. And he will finally and forever put death to death. And he will make every sad thing come untrue. And he will dry every eye. And he will right every wrong. As people of faith in Christ Jesus, we hold on to that future hope. But there is a hope and there is a power available to us in Christ right now. Now, that's what he says. There are some here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And do you know that those folks who he was talking to saw the kingdom of God come in power? Where, where did they see it? They saw it at the resurrection. They saw God defeat death and the grave and sin and every other enemy against his humanity. And they also saw it in Acts chapter 2 where the spirit of the living God came and indwelled every believer, empowering them for the work of the mission. And we see it throughout the annals of history. The church, though not perfect, is being perfected by a perfect God. And the gates of hell will not prevail Matthew chapter 16 tells us in the parallel passage. (sighs) Following the crucified Christ means being led by the conquering Christ who will share with all of his people the blessings of his conquest. Church, we need a new hope for a world that is broken and battered because of sin. And in Christ, we get that. We get the abundant life of Jesus right here and right now. But it's only available to us through the cross through weakness and through death. And that is the only way we can enter into the kingdom as well through weakness and death. Jesus' weakness and our death, and our weakness being able to confess, I need you, God. What a disorienting message for the 21st century. We get power by giving it away. We get wealth by giving it away. We gain honor by honoring others. And for those of you, listen, who are still convinced that suffering is in the way of the abundant life of Christ, I got to tell you, suffering is not in the way. It is the way to untold power and meaning and purpose. This is Paul in Philippians 3, verse 10, declaring, I want to know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. And all God's people said amen, but Paul doesn't stop. He says, and I also want to know the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. Why? Because Jesus Christ now lives in us, and he wants to live his sacrificial life through us. How else is the world around us? going to ever see peace that surpasses all understanding going to see hope that's beyond all rationality that's going to see resolute assurance beyond all reason only then will the world around us be able to say i need what it is you have to which the saint can boldly proclaim it's not a what it's a who and his name is jesus Okay, we're going we're to end the service a little bit differently today. We have a unique opportunity coming up next month to effectively equip hundreds of kids in our community and our church to be able to rightly answer this final exam question. To effectively equip them to be able to say with confident assurance and boldness, Jesus is the Christ and he's given me a new life in him.